Welcome to Have You Heard, an IDF podcast. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization that improves the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people affected by primary immunodeficiency. People living with PI are the zebras of the medical world, and the IDF community is one big zebra herd. As part of the Connection series, a panel of influential leaders will be discussing their thoughts today on health equity. This episode was originally presented during IDF's 2021 PI conference in June. All right, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our panel discussion on health equity. I am Dr. Nicole Rochester, and I will be moderating our discussion today. I am a board-certified pediatrician, speaker, professional health advocate, and the CEO of Your GPS Doc. I help patients and family caregivers navigate the healthcare system. And as a health equity champion and consultant, I am thrilled to have been invited to moderate this panel today. And I'm really excited to have this discussion with our esteemed panelists. So, you know, we know that there is a dark history of medical racism in the healthcare system that really dates back to the very beginnings of healthcare and of medical practice with medical experimentation on slaves and uh, eugenics and forced sterilization. And we also know that unfortunately, health disparities, meaning differences in the outcomes that we see between individuals from marginalized communities, whether that be racial and ethnic minorities, um, those who are lower socioeconomic statuses, those disparities persist even in 2021. And certainly the COVID-19 pandemic really exposed some of those realities to not only those of us in healthcare, but to society at large. And so there has been a push towards health equity, which really means giving everyone an equal opportunity to achieve their best healthcare. And so we are thrilled to talk with you today and provide our own perspectives as it relates to health equity. So I'm going to introduce our panelists. With me today, we have Dr. Michelle Andrasic and Dr. Vivian Hernandez Trujillo. Uh, Michelle Andrasic is a clinical health psychologist. She is the Director of Social and Behavioral Sciences and Community Engagement for the Fred Hutchinson HIV Vaccine Trials Network and the COVID-19 Prevention Network. She's a senior staff scientist in the Fred Hutchinson Vaccine and Infectious Disease Division and an affiliate assistant professor in the Department of Global Health and Environmental and Occupational Health Services at University of Washington. Dr. Andrasic's work focuses on addressing health inequities among Black, Indigenous people of color, and gender and sexual minority communities. Dr. Vivian Hernandez Trujillo is the director of the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Miami Children's Hospital, Nicholas Children's Hospital, and has served in this role since 2008. She is also the training program director for the Allergy Immunology Fellowship at Nicholas Children's Hospital at Florida International University. 
As a subject matter expert in immunology, she serves on the Medical Advisory Committee for the Immune Deficiency Foundation, and during COVID has translated informational videos into Spanish for patient audiences. In May, Dr. Hernandez Trujillo conducted IDF's first patient forum conducted completely in Spanish. So welcome Dr. Andrasic and Dr. Hernandez Trujillo. It is a pleasure to have you with us here today. Thank you. Thank you so much, it's a pleasure. You're welcome. So let's get started with our first question and we'll start with you, Dr. Andrasic. What does health equity mean to you? Well, I think, you know, health equity means that everyone, uh, regardless of their socioeconomic status, their identity, has access to services that are going to promote their health and well-being and access to quality services um, that are culturally appropriate and responsive to their needs. Um, you know, and I think you know, often we confuse equity with equality, um, uh, people often don't need the same types of services. They need services that are going to meet them where they are and get them to health and well-being, not only for themselves, but their families and their larger community. I agree 100%. Thank you so much. What about you, Dr. Hernandez Trujillo? What are your thoughts about health equity and what it means to you? So I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, I use a lot of the same words, but regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of age, gender, sexual orientation, the patient really deserves to have equal, not only physical health care, but mental health care. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind, again, highlighted and exposed by the pandemic more than ever, right? And to be able to receive the quality health care that's considered standard of care that they're not impacted negatively due to lack of resources or uh, due to prejudice or bias on whoever's taking care of them. And, and those are negative things that could lead to suboptimal care, but health equity would mean that everyone has the care that they deserve. At the end of the day, it's just about receiving the care that we all deserve. Absolutely. I, I appreciate that you all brought up two really important points. One being that, you know, not everyone needs the same care. I'm thinking about I have two daughters and they have very different personalities. And my husband and I learned after we had our second daughter five years later that you know the way that we parented our first daughter needed to be different than how we parented our second daughter. And that created some challenges for us at the time as, as new parents. And so I, when I think about health equity, I, I also think about those same concepts and you know we can't go into um, this, this industry and we can't have encounters with patients assuming that there's a one size fit all model, right? And that the way that I approach one patient is the exact same way that I approach another. And I don't know about you all, but I, don't, I feel that that was deficient in my training. You know, as, as a medical student and as a pediatric resident, we weren't really taught, um, you know, differences in terms of cultural competency or cultural humility. You know, we learned the medicine and we learned communication skills and things of that nature. But at least at the time that I trained, there wasn't really any emphasis on the fact that I may need to show up differently to different population groups. What would you all say about that? Well, you know, I had one class in my doctoral 
program uh, that focused on bias, implicit bias specifically, uh, which comes out of psychology. Um, so yeah, I was even for mental health practitioners, I think that that training is really limited. And um, I think that, you know, because learning about bias and how that bias may show up in your practice or in your personal and professional life, really, uh, it's an iterative process. So having one finite class to say, okay, now we've talked about your bias and you're, you're ready to go it is really not the way that we need to incorporate these trainings into um, education, you know, and I feel as though it should start even before you're in your graduate program or your advanced degree program. These are things that we should be teaching students in, you know, primary and secondary school to recognize their biases and how um, they impact their behavior and their emotions and their worldview. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say that we definitely do not address this enough. Uh, race and, um, you know, identities that are uh, seen as less than are topics that are really difficult for people to talk about in our culture, particularly because of all the anger and the guilt and the shame and the frustration that come along with, you know, centuries long, um, you know, race-based science, discrimination uh, because of sexuality and, and gender identity and, you know, the list goes on. So we really need to have tools to be able to effectively discuss differences uh, and uh, to be able to address them in our work. And I feel as though many of us don't have the necessary tools to do that. So we avoid it. Absolutely. It, it is a very highly charged topic. And as you said, Dr. Andrasic, there's a lot of guilt and shame and, uh, you know, finger pointing. No one wants to think that they're a bad person, uh, but we have to move beyond that because it's absolutely impacting the care that our patients receive. What about you, Dr. Hernandez Trujillo? Did you have any specific training that you feel would allow you to you know, go out here and provide care that's, that's equitable? Unfortunately not. And, and I actually grew up in the Northeast. Um, I was actually one of the few Hispanics, not only in, in school, like in training at different levels, I completely agree. We need to start earlier. I think that number one, it doesn't matter what field you go into. This is something that really needs to be addressed across the entire population, regardless of your specialty um, or what you decide to like finally go into, but unfortunately I didn't. I think I've had different life experiences and some of them I'll talk about later, um, but I think really some of your life experiences, positive and negative, will actually help form you. And I, I think there is some hope as I see now, you know, I'm a fellowship training program director. I'm involved in pediatric residency training. And we do have now very specific topics that we discuss, including implicit bias, including talking about cultural differences. And I think that gives me hope that, you know, there is some, it might be small, but a small step in the right direction is at least moving in the right direction. I completely agree. The, the other topic that you all brought up that I want to illuminate before we move on to our next question is the concept that health equity is not the same as equality. 
And I'm, I'm reminded of the graphic that you all have probably seen where, you know, there are people watching a baseball game uh, behind a fence and you have one gentleman that's tall enough to see over the fence without, you know, any extra help. And then you have, you know, maybe a, a, a older child or a young adult who's shorter, who's standing on one box. And then you have a little kid who's standing on like two or three boxes so that he can see over that fence. And, you know, that graphic is used widely to represent health equity and the fact that we are going to need to show up differently. We're going to need to provide different resources and we need to be okay with that, you know, and, and in fact, we need to embrace that, that there are some communities and there are some individuals within marginalized communities who are going to need something different. They may even need more. And so this idea that, you know, we're all equal and, you know, the healthcare system should just provide the same thing to everyone we've seen over the decades that that is not working, you know, and we continue to have these huge disparities in outcomes in pretty much every disease that you can think of when you compare people of color to, um, you know, the majority individuals. And so um, I, I just appreciate that you all brought that up. It's, it's very important that everyone understands that, that difference between equality and equity and really making sure that we go to great lengths to identify what our communities need and then provide according to their need. So I wanna thank you all for that. So we're gonna move on to our next question. And that is, I'm gonna ask each of you to describe a challenge related to health inequities that you've encountered in your own specialty or within your professional practice. So we'll start with you first this time, Dr. Hernandez Trujillo. So again, because this is very recent and because of the pandemic, um, I was actually called early on in the pandemic by a family who is Spanish speaking only. They live in the state of Florida, not where I live, but in the state of Florida. Um, and they had a child who was in ICU and they, the parents couldn't have any answers. So number one, they couldn't speak to anybody, not only in their language, when it finally, when they were able to speak to someone who was able to communicate with them appropriately so that they could understand, it was still at a level that they couldn't understand. So they reached out to me and I was happy that they reached out to me to just kind of help them kind of navigate, understand what was happening because we were in the middle of a very scary situation and the, the patient was very, very ill. I think what this highlights is it doesn't really even matter. You would assume that in the state of Florida, not far from where I live, there are Spanish speaking people and still this family with a critically ill family member was not able to get the appropriate care and answers. And I think that, you know, we can talk about different types of inequities, but I think, you know, number one, you have to understand what's being told. Now that can be also in English. If it's at a level that you don't understand, that's still, that's not appropriate. So we need to be able to address something that may be as simple as that, but it's not simple. It's actually very disheartening that it's still happening in 2021. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. What about you, Dr. Andrasic? Well, I think for me, you know, I've been working on HIV prevention for over 30 years now, and that is the first pandemic that I worked on and is still a pandemic that is raging. And we uh, experience many challenges with moving forward uh, with the research 
here in the U.S. and abroad, in the U.S., many individuals don't think that HIV is an issue any longer. Um, so we experience uh, a lot of challenges enrolling in our phase one program, uh, which you know is looking at enrolling um, individuals who have low risk profiles. And because HIV is not a problem in my community or your community, or it's not a problem anymore, which is what a lot of people feel, um, we continue to have challenges. HIV is also still incredibly stigmatized. And um, it generally, especially here in the US, the risk profile and the social and structural factors that place individuals at differential risk converge on people and populations that have multiple devalued identities. So in the US, it's Latino and Black men who have sex with men, Latino women, Black women who are really disproportionately impacted by HIV and often feel, you know, ignored or pushed aside or, you know, ostracized really because of HIV. I mean, it's 2021 and I still hear stories about people not wanting to share utensils with their family members because uh, they are, are uh, living with HIV. And it's really just heartbreaking in, in many situations because we have not done a lot to address the stigma around HIV and the stigma uh, around poverty and homophobia and transphobia and all of those things converge together to place people at differential risk. And because the populations that are most at risk are devalued, the attention that we give to HIV, in my opinion, is not as much as it would be if it were impacting individuals who were uh, more valued. Really, really good points. You know, Dr. Hernandez Trujillo, you bring up the issue of, you know, language barriers and, and we really do a poor job addressing that. I know when I worked in a hospital setting for years, you know, we had in-person interpreters, we had the interpreter phones, but many times I saw colleagues, you know, attempting to bypass those, those tools and, and just kind of pop in the room, so to speak, and, and give a quick update. And unfortunately, you know, many times our patients who, uh, for whom English is not their first language are not always willing or, or able or feel comfortable telling us when they don't understand. And, and really the onus is on us as healthcare professionals to make sure that we are, you know, communicating in a language that they understand. And that's actually a legal right. Um, and so the fact that that does not happen even now in healthcare institutions is, is very disheartening. And as you mentioned, even those without a language barrier, you know, I've been in discussions uh, about, you know, health equity and specifically related to the black community and just acknowledging that our communication styles are often different. You know, maybe some of the way that we use language is different and, and having an appreciation that even people who speak English, um, you know, certainly can have language barriers and health literacy barriers, particularly, you know, when it comes to some of the lingo that we tend to use. Um, and, and Dr. Andrasic, you know, you mentioned that the intersectionality, which is 
so important when we talk about, you know, when you have people from multiple marginalized and devalued groups and when that all comes together, you know, with um, our LGBTQ community and, and you're also Latino or black. And so, you know, when you're dealing with um, those aspects from all of those, all of your identities, um, you know, it, it can really make it very difficult to receive equitable care. I can share, you know, my one of my personal experiences is uh, as a caregiver from my late father, who was a black man. And, you know, I didn't actually appreciate it at the time, but when my dad's health declined and my sisters and I became his caregivers, you know, I, as the doctor in the family, started accompanying him to his medical appointments. And I was really um, very aghast, honestly, at how I saw my dad treated. Initially, I didn't disclose that I was a physician. You know, I just wanted to be there as his daughter. And I think that that gave me some incredible insight as to how individuals are treated. Um, that was really my first experience on the other side of the stethoscope, so to speak, and really getting to experience our healthcare system, you know, not as the doctor or the healthcare professional. And, and my dad's um, often he was ignored or, you know, kind of talked down to. And even as his daughter, as his caregiver, I was ignored as well until I began to disclose that I was a physician. And in having conversations with other um, Black and Latino physicians and other healthcare professionals, we all have this same story of, you know, seeing a difference in how we are treated, whether we're going for care ourselves or whether we are accompanying our loved ones and literally, you know, seeing like a light bulb come on or an entire, um, you know, positioning and just attitude shift when that other healthcare provider finds out that we are in the medical field. And that, and that pains me so deeply because it lets me know the experiences that our brothers and sisters have who don't, who can't flash the, you know, the medical degree or the master's or the PhD. And um, to know that, you know, they are experiencing disparate care that, that stems, as you all said earlier, from all of these biases that none of us are protected from. You know, all of us have bias. We've all been exposed to negative stereotypes. We've all heard things and seen things that color the way that we um, experience individuals. And, and so there's really no way around that. It doesn't make us bad people as part of us being human, but certainly in healthcare, you know, we have to acknowledge that bias and, and really find ways to disarm it so that we can provide equitable care to our, our patients and to our communities. Before we move on, do you all have anything else that you wanna share about that? Well, Dr. Rochester, I think you bring up a really important point. And you know, one of the things that is very, very apparent in, even in the literature, like beyond you know, our personal experiences is that not only are people with devalued identities treated differently, but they receive less referrals uh, you know, they aren't seen as, you know, good candidates for clinical trials, so may not be told about a clinical trial. And half the battle with equity is having the information so that you can make an informed decision. So if no one's giving you that information and they're not treating you as though you are an able and capable person to make decisions about your health and well-being, then you are, you're, you're 
losing ground instead of gaining ground in your in your medical and um, health endeavors. And I think that that's a critical, critical point because navigating the system, I think is a, a large part of why we don't have the equity that we have because people don't get the information they need and aren't provided the capacity to effectively navigate the healthcare system. I agree completely. You know, I, that's literally what I do is help people navigate the healthcare system. And you're absolutely right, Dr. Andrasik. It starts with having the education. And, you know, there are assumptions that are made that people from, um, you know, certain races, certain ethnicities, certain backgrounds can't comprehend or can't understand the information. And, and you're right. And that leads to differences in referral patterns. You know, we, we see differences in, you know, transplantation for end-stage renal disease and, I mean, a host of other conditions where there is a standard of care. There are guidelines and we find that those guidelines are not being followed. Um, and it really comes down very often, unfortunately, to, to race. Do you have anything to add to that, Dr. Hernandez Trujillo? I actually wanted to make a comment. I, I was a young medical student in Albany, New York. That's where I trained um, during the very beginning of the HIV epidemic. And I, I completely can associate with, with what Dr. Andrasik's saying, because I think you know, this is probably one of those experiences that really did affect me as a young, soon to be aspiring physician. And I remember, and because we were at the Capitol also, honestly, we had the majority of the HIV patients because back then this was, I'm talking very early on in the, in the early nineties and mid nineties really is, is when I was there. But one of the things I will never forget, and it really has been brought back. And, and I think this is one of the reasons that, that the COVID pandemic has also highlighted is the need for an advocate, right? And that's really what, that we're, what we're talking about. I remember as a young medical student who, you know, I was single, I didn't have children. I, I would sit with some of the patients after hours and just listen to them and talk to them because their families really wanted nothing to do with them. And these were a lot of young men and they were people, <laughs> They were people that deserved to have someone listen to them. And they were in their diet, like their last days. There were many that died while I was on a specific HIV rotation. And honestly, that is what impacted me to want to become an immunologist was the experience with the HIV patient. The reason I bring this up is the need for an advocate. And that doesn't have to be, it can be a daughter, but it can also be your physician. It can be your medical team. And that's one of the things that, you know, I tell people, I'm not walking in your shoes and I'm not going to say I completely understand, but I can walk beside you in this journey of life. And, and believe me, as an immunologist, I firmly believe I do. And, and that can be regardless of, again, race, ethnicity, uh, sexual orientation. We're all people. We all deserve to have respect. And, and I think that that is one of the things I just wanted to add to this part of the conversation. That is wonderful. And I, I love that you mentioned that the physician, the healthcare professional provider can also be that advocate. I love that. And we need to be. I mean, that, that's really part of our role as healthcare providers. So I really appreciate that. All right. So we're going to move on to our next question. And that is, if there was one best first step that we could take as a society to advance health equity, and I know this is a big, big task and a big goal, but 
What would that be from each of your perspectives, that, that first next step? I'll start with you, Dr. Andrasic. Well, I think, you know, I think it has to start um, early on. You know, I mean, I think of my own experience of how I navigated the, the system. And, you know, one of the things, one of the main things that helped me get to where I am was Head Start. And this is just from an educational perspective. You know, we grew up in poverty and my family couldn't afford preschool and daycare. So um, had it not been for Head Start, I would have shown up in kindergarten without any previous education or and not able to read. I wasn't able to read when I started kindergarten, but I was on my way um, much further than I would have been had I not um, been in Head Start. So I really think that equity really needs to start in our communities from the very beginning. Like what resources do our communities have to be healthy? Uh, having food deserts in the United States, a resource rich country is absolutely unacceptable. You should be able to get fresh produce and fresh foods, uh, non-processed um, you know, packaged foods anywhere you live in this country. And so just from these very, very basic steps and teaching you know, kids about nutrition and the importance of an active lifestyle. You know, I think a lot of the focus is on exercise and, and working out, but really it's about an active lifestyle. And what does that active lifestyle mean for you? And maybe it is exercise, you know, maybe that's what you do, or maybe it's just walking every day, which is exercise. And I think a lot of people don't see that as exercise. Um, so, I, you know, I really do think that we need to um, build a foundation of health and wellness in our communities starting very young uh, so that people know how to take care of themselves. And we build this base, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Rochester, of health literacy. You know, where do I find out information about my health? What are credible resources. One of the challenges that we've been faced with in COVID and really with everything is where people get their information. And, you know, a lot of people see certain sources that are entertainment sources as news sources. And so, you know, really teaching communities like where, where can I get my information? Who can I trust to give good information? And then the last thing I'll say is that we really need to invest in the institutions that we're working with, building reputations of trustworthiness. So many of our academic institutions, our medical institutions have really shady histories in Absolutely. our communities. You know, like in Harlem, you talk about Columbia University, there's a long sordid history of the Harlem community and Columbia University, which is the prime, one of the primary medical uh, providers in that area. And I could go around all of the major cities in the country and see pretty much the same sorted history. So how do we begin building reputations of trustworthiness in our communities 
so that people know that they can come to us and they're going to be respected and they're going to be able to talk to us. And the environment that we're creating is not only welcoming, but it's affirming. And I think, you know, those are really, for me, the key points where we can make tremendous differences. I love that. I love that you talk about starting early, you know, and the link to education. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about racism, but we know that racism is, exists in all of our systems. And, and some of those early disparities in education and income are the things that perpetuate health inequities as well. So I appreciate you making that connection. And we certainly can't overemphasize uh, the trustworthiness. And, and again, the COVID pandemic has really brought that to light. And, and it also just makes me think about, you know, again, related to inequities, the, the blaming that we do. You know, early on, there was all this negative discussion about, you know, black and brown communities and them not wanting to be tested or them not wanting to get the COVID vaccine uh, without acknowledging that that history that continues, you know, we don't have to go back to the Tuskegee experiment. We don't have to go back to the 1800s when, you know, slaves were experimented on without their consent and without anesthesia. There are modern day examples that I'm sure each of us can share, um, you know, where, where this continues to exist. And so I agree with you, we have to find ways to build that trust and we have to accept the responsibility that, you know, why certain communities and certain people don't readily seek healthcare in a traditional manner. And we, we have to own that and do better. Thank you so much. What about you, Dr. Hernandez Trujillo? What, what are some next steps that you think we can take in this quest to achieve health equity? So I think obviously recognition is, is first and foremost. And I think as much as we'd like to say that, yes, you know, the majority of people, that's not true. The majority of people are still not aware of everything that we're discussing today during this session. So I think, and I completely agree, we need to start with the very, very young. Um, as a pediatric subspecialist, it's also our responsibility, as we've said about not only advocating, but we're all busy and we all have a lot of things, but we need to make time for things like this that are very important. So having different, whether it's an example, having an asthma fair in in an inner city community or going to, and, and every, you know, based on race, based on culture, different communities need different things. We've already said that, right? So in one community, it might be going to do a fair at a community center, where at another, it might be going to a church. Somewhere else today, I read about barbershops maybe offering COVID vaccine. I think that's awesome. I think yeah. we need to be where the patients are. It doesn't matter, but we need to recognize that different populations need different access and different resources. And just really coming together, again, not only as a medical community, coming together as people and trying to work together to address wherever we need to be. Honestly, it's, it's going to be a slow process. It's going to take a lot of efforts and it's going to be multifaceted, but we can do it. We just have to work together. This is about collaboration. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. It's definitely about collaboration. And you're right. We, we have to meet patients where they are. You know, we've erected these ivory towers and these academic medical institutions. And like Dr. Andrasik said, you know, there's a history of the communities in which those, those uh, institutions reside. There has been mistreatment. And um, so we can't be surprised or we shouldn't be surprised as to why some of those communities choose not to seek care. And so we have to go to them. And I just, I'm, I love that you mentioned the barbershop 
example because I have just been thrilled about that. I actually trained at the University of Maryland and years ago, uh, one of the professors there kind of piloted this, this project with you know providing health information and healthcare in the barbershops. And then I think that may have kind of fizzled out. And so I'm so excited to see a resurgence of that. And I mean, what better place to offer education about COVID and the vaccines and to eliminate all the barriers by just giving it to them. You have the conversation, you convince someone once they have the appropriate information and then they can get their vaccine right there, you know, while they're getting their haircut. I just think that, I mean, those are the out of the box ways that we're going to need to think about as we really, you know, move toward this effort to increase health equity. I guess for me, the, the one step that I've been thinking a lot about is accountability. I, I think that, you know, we've been doing things the same way for a long time. And as the saying goes, that's the definition of insanity. So we're getting the same results because we're doing things the same way. And I think that despite the best efforts of individuals, like those of us here on this panel, those of you watching and others, you know, within and outside of the healthcare community, Unfortunately, I believe that until we start holding institutions and maybe even individuals accountable for these disparate outcomes, that we may not see true change. And I think, you know, just like there are quality measures that we have to abide by and institutions have, you know, penalties, but they also have incentives when they are providing quality care. I think that, um, you know, equitable care needs to be a, a healthcare quality measure. And I think that healthcare professionals and healthcare institutions need to be judged and they need to be measured, you know, based on the, the care that they provide to everyone. Um, so that's just, that's something that I've been thinking a lot about. All right. So we've kind of alluded to the, the racism topic. We're going to go ahead and go there. Um, on April 8th, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the CDC director declared that racism is a serious health threat. And we've seen other um, you know, state health departments and other national health organizations come out and say the same, that racism is truly a, a public health crisis. Um, so before I get your reactions to this, I just wanna briefly provide a little background because again, we talked earlier about when we hear this word racism, you know, many of us kind of go inside of our shells and we become very defensive or we feel guilt and shame. Uh, but what we're really talking about is, is systemic racism. And, and racism is defined as by Merriam-Webster as the systemic oppression of a racial group to the social, economic, and political advantage of another. And um, you know, so when we talk about racism and its impact on health inequities, yes, there are biases and there definitely are things that individual providers do and don't do. But we also have to acknowledge that the bigger picture is that this racism is literally baked into uh, the healthcare system as well as all of the systems throughout this country and, and in our society. So I personally was uh, very, um, you know, happy is probably not the right word, but I, I felt a sense of comfort that the CDC declared racism a public health threat, a public health crisis. I think that this is long overdue, the acknowledgement of the impact of racism on health outcomes is long overdue. And so I wanted to get you all's reactions to that statement. So we will start with you, Dr. Hernandez Trujillo. So obviously I was very, again, not happy, but I was, I, I felt like at least 
someone's recognizing and making it making it known across the board that it is a public health threat. And and again, because I, I don't want to keep going back to the pandemic, but the pandemic really has highlighted how disproportionately um, different racial groups have been affected, Blacks. And again, I, as a physician, my role is always to do no harm, right? That's, we all take, we take the Hippocratic oath. And I think it's easy to say, and in other cases, it, it might not be easy to, to continue to do that, but that's always the main goal. I learn, like right now I'm learning. I think we have to accept that we don't know everything, that every experience, every session, that we hear about, we're going to learn more and more. And I think that this is, you know, I'm very fortunate to be part of the panel, but I myself am learning as, as we're sharing our experiences. It really, as a Latino female in medicine, it disheartens me to hear, you know, about the institutions, which I am aware of, but I also know of many respected colleagues who work very hard to try to help with, you know, to make things um, not so disparate and, and they do. And again, I, I have to go back to the word respect because at the end of the day, I think we have to understand that we're all human beings and having respect one for the other. Again, we're not walking in each other's shoes, but at least trying to learn. I think that's the first step. Thank you. Thank you so much. What about you, Dr. Andrasic? Well, I, I just want to echo what Dr. Hernandez Trujillo says, you know, there are so many amazing health professionals who are really working to move the needle towards equity. And, you know, I think of those individuals who are doing that work. And what strikes me most is that those individuals understand the deep rooted nature of um, racism across our systems. And so the CDC's acknowledgement of this is like the, the very first baby step to actually taking action to do something to address it, you know? And it always, it shocks me actually when I talk to medical students or graduate students who are not aware of the long history of race-based science in this country and what that means for BIPOC individuals. You know, basically from like the, the early 1800s through the Great Depression, this country operated on a science that was not data-driven and really uh, placed people of color from black to Latino to Chinese, across the mm -hmm. African diaspora, across the Latin diaspora, across the Asian diaspora as less than and inferior because of their race, you know? And that, you know, there were articles written stating that black people had different sebaceous gland systems that made them more suitable for hard labor and that they could sustain long periods with lack of nutrition and lack of um, liquids. And this went on largely unrefuted um, until the Great Depression, which kind of flipped the script and those jobs that were once undesirable were now the only jobs. And then for the first time, you see something in the medical literature that refutes this long-standing notion of race-based science. And, you know, and I think that history is critical 
to understanding how rooted systemic racism is and knowing, you know, there was a survey in 2018 of medical residents, med students, and the lay population. And 50% of those people surveyed still believe that black and brown people have a higher tolerance for pain. Um, and then you look at all of the inequities in pain medication, prescription, uh, and you know, there's no question that we are still battling against the inequities that resulted from that long period of systemic racism. So yeah, I think that this is a very, very needed and tiny step forward. And now we have to try to identify what actions need to be put in place to get us to a reality where we don't have this systemic racism. And I think Dr. Rochester, what you said before, like having metrics in place, like, you know, how are we evaluated? How are tenure and promotion evaluated? And is there some metric of your work to, uh, towards equity and inclusion in those metrics of evaluation? And I know that makes some people uncomfortable but I think we need, if we are gonna move the needle, then we need to be able to say and assess that movement. So we need metrics for, to be able to evaluate it. And currently we have very few. So it's unclear to me how we're gonna know if we're moving that needle. You, you all, again, brought up such great points. I was gonna mention that article um, that was conducted, that survey, like you said, and, and it just, to know that you know these are future doctors. In fact, by now some of them are practicing medicine. You know, and to know that medical students and and residents, those in, in my beloved profession, in 2017, 18, still believe that you know black people have thicker skin and therefore don't feel pain the same way. And in fact, in that same study, they had the students and residents. Uh, they provided them with these mock patients. You know, one black, one white, otherwise identical case presentation regarding pain and the ones that endorsed those false beliefs, you know, rated the pain lower for the black patients and uh, prescribed less or no pain medication, which is exactly what we see in the real world. You know, as a pediatrician, I remember seeing the study that came out a few years ago where they looked at pediatric patients, I mean, kids, who presented to the emergency department with appendicitis. So this isn't subjective pain, my, my tummy hurts. This is, these are children who underwent diagnostic testing that showed that they actually had appendicitis, which we know is very painful. And in, the, in that study, you know, the, the black kids with appendicitis, uh, those with moderate pain received less pain medication than the white patients and, and those with severe pain were less likely to receive narcotics for, you know, for their pain. And these are children. And so, you know, this, this spans across ages, across gender, across socioeconomic status. You know, we know if we look at uh, maternal outcomes as an example, you know, a college educated black woman is more likely to die in childbirth than a white woman with a high school diploma or not even a high school diploma. So, you know, we cannot ignore that racism exists in medicine and we can't blame it solely on 
social determinants of health, when we have outcomes among, you know, educated, relatively wealthy, uh, you know, Black women, just as an example, that show that despite, you know, your education, despite your socioeconomic status, if your skin is Black or brown, in America, you are likely to receive substandard medical care. And, and that's just something that is, is not acceptable. And so, you know, I agree with you all with the CDC making that declaration that is certainly a baby step, but an important step in the work that is going to be required moving forward. So as we wrap up, you know, with both of you having a background in immunology and, you know, with this being the IDF conference, I want to ask you, what are some things that you think that you can do or that we can do collectively to specifically promote health equity for patients with immunodeficiency disorders? Either one of you, feel free to go first. Near and dear to my heart. I will, I will say, um, you know, I think the IDF, and this is one of the reasons I've been really happy to partner with them over the years. Um, the IDF has done an amazing job in at least trying to address areas. So I'm gonna speak specifically to Latino. The fact that during the COVID pandemic, where there was very little information, and this is not just here, but really, honestly, it was worldwide. There was very little information from medical professionals. Um, the fact that I had the opportunity to translate information about the pandemic as it was happening was really something very, very big, not only for the primary immunodeficiency community, but for, for anyone that was Spanish speaking only, I would say. Also, the fact that we just held our first Spanish-speaking, um, you know, forum, patient forum, that was really exciting because that had not been done before. So I think, you know, these are all opportunities where they will continue to happen, I'm hopeful, and, and then expanding it. So during the national conference at one point, hopefully having a session that's in Spanish only. So for people to be able to ask questions and, and I think that that's, you know, those are the types of efforts that are very, very helpful. And, and primary immunodeficiency in particular, it's important to be able to ask questions of not only healthcare professionals, but again, I, I'm gonna go back for a minute to, to mental health. And again, I feel like Immune Deficiency Foundation has been really great about it. We need to address the mental health disparities that exist as well, because you know, mental health, if, if we weren't concerned about it before, we really need to be concerned about it. I can't tell you a lot of, of what our visits have been over the last year have included discussions about how are you feeling? How is your mood? How is school going? And hearing about suicide attempts from children that I've been caring for for years and hearing about depression and hearing about all of the challenges really that everyone has experienced, but some people have experienced it more for many reasons, not having proper resources, whatever it might be, but we need to address those. So I think that, that those, you know, those are all things that we can, we can help. And, and again, as a practicing pediatric immunologist, taking the time during visits to address this, it's important to talk to patients about it. It does take a little bit longer, but that's what we're here for. So I think that th those are important things that we, you know, we can do. That is incredible. Kudos to IDF for, for that pioneering work. I mean, I, that's exactly the kind of thing that we need to engage in moving forward. Thank you so much for sharing that. What about you, Dr. Andrasic? What are some things we can begin to do to address health equity, specifically for people with immunodeficiency disorders? 
Well, you know, one of the things that I'm really proud of uh, in the HVTN is how we have identified um, avenues to engage community from the very beginning and not only engaging uh, community, but making sure that community has the capacity to show up in a meaningful way and, and know that, that their place at the table is their place at the table and they can contribute in a way that um, I think is meaningful for the science generally and for the community um, at large. So, you know, I think moving forward and really trying to identify how do we get community members at the table early on and as we begin to discuss the way forward, as we begin to discuss protocols that we're developing, as we begin to discuss grants that we're going to be writing, instead of pulling community in later as advisory committees or advisory boards or whatever um, we name them, uh, we found that to be incredibly critical in moving um, our work forward and ensuring that um, our practices and protocols are addressing some of the community concerns. Because often I think as providers and as researchers, we're not completely aware of all the concerns that the community is bringing to the table. And I think making sure that we consider them and address them and the work that we address them as much as we can or refer them to other uh, specialists if we can't address them specifically is really critical um, in that work. So the more we can involve community, I think the better we'll be moving on. I completely agree. I, I, I would just add, you know, I think that that recognition of involving community from the beginning is so important and it's gonna be an important element of equity. And, and you're right. I mean, we traditionally in healthcare and in research, we follow our agendas. And then if we bring patients and family members in at all, we do it after we've already, you know, developed the thing. And then we basically just want their stamp of approval. And, and what we've learned, you know, again, to bring up COVID is that communities, that the answers typically lie within the community. You know, we, we tend to look at communities as uh, places of scarcity and not always particularly marginalized communities and not recognizing the wealth of knowledge and resources and strength and resilience that they have. And so bringing them in uh, from the beginning and letting them tell us what they need instead of us going in as outsiders and telling them what they need, I think is a huge step towards equity. Well, I wanna thank both of you. This has been an amazing conversation. Um, I wanna thank the Immune Deficiency Foundation for hosting this and, and for allowing us the opportunity to share our thoughts about health equity I hope that this has been helpful for those of you who are watching. And in closing, I just wanna offer each of you an opportunity to share maybe a closing thought. And if those watching want to have more information or follow you, um, how can they find out more information about each of you? So we'll start with you, Dr. Andrasic. Well, first, thank you for inviting me. This has been a really incredible conversation. I really appreciate um, both of you wonderful colleagues on this call. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm at the um, HIV Vaccine Trials Network. We have hvtn.org. You can find uh, me there. And in closing, you know, I just want to say I think 
that there's been a lot of momentum that has been created um, as a result of COVID. If there can be a silver lining from COVID, I think the momentum towards equity is, is one of the silver linings. And I am really encouraged and um, uplifted by all of the activities that are taking place to move this work forward and to really try to address you know, systemic racism and some of the social and structural factors that contribute to inequities. And, you know, I would just um, encourage everyone to get involved in that work and to try to identify actions that you can take as a provider and that your institution can take and setting long and short term goals and attaching metrics to those goals so you can identify whether you've actually achieved them, I think is really critical because all of us need to do the work. Every single one of us needs to do the work if we are going to be in a reality where our society is equitable. Thank you so much. Dr. Hernandez Trujillo? I think, um, and I've, I've talked at other conferences before for the Immune Deficiency Foundation about the importance of communication. So having, having open communication, number one, with your healthcare provider, whether it's your physician, your nurse practitioner, the whole medical team. And there are times when you may feel like you're not being heard. There are times where you may feel like you're not getting the answer that you need. And then what I tell people is, and even my own patients, if someone says, you know, I'm frustrated, I'll say, look, a second opinion or finding someone that you feel is a better fit is okay. And I would encourage it. So never feeling like threatened, at least as, on the medical professional side, we need to have an open communication. People sometimes need something that you may not be able to offer and that's okay. But then I want to, I want to just make a little comment about when I was in Memphis, I was coming to a children's hospital, which was one of the most amazing experiences in my life, I will say. I was, you know, I was not from Memphis. So I really, I had to make an effort. And I was told by patients, you're different. That wasn't a bad thing. I, I don't want medical professionals to ever feel like that's bad. It's okay to be different. And like I said, I haven't walked anyone's shoes but I can walk with them. And I got very close to several patients. And I want to bring this up because sometimes you think you have to do something huge. It's not about the big things in life. It's about the small, consistent things that are day to day. So part of our visits, I always ask as a pediatrician about grades. I ask about report cards. And I had three to four children that were failing. And when I asked why, they said, nobody cares. And I said, you know what? I care. And for the two years that I was there, those children would bring me the report cards. And I can honestly tell you that in those cases, we went from D's and F's to A's and B's. And those children continue to send me report cards when I left and moved. So you may think that that's something little. That wasn't little. Those children, that was big for them. And I think, you know, as a, as a physician, you always feel like you have to address the healthcare. People are people. We need to care about every aspect, right? So we were talking earlier about the importance of nutrition. I talk about nutrition, not only from the food allergy perspective, I talk about it because that's important to your day-to-day -day life. And I ask about grades. So you may think that something is not worth doing or, oh, it's not a big deal. Honestly, those four families have told me over the years, you did make a difference. 
and it's okay to be different, but, but take, you know, take the step. I think that's what I would challenge all of us, right? Take the step just because we're not all the same. That's wonderful that we're not all the same. It would be super boring, but I think it's really important to just, it's okay to hear that you're different. It's don't feel at all threatened by it. And I think that it's just, it's important. I, I think that this has been a really valuable panel and I wasn't even going to talk about that story, but I think it's important to talk about it because what you may think is something very little may not be for somebody else. And I think that that's really what I, what I want to end with, but I, I also thank you for the opportunity. I've really valued my time with both of you and, and I just appreciate everyone's attention during this important, very important session. Thank you so much. And in, in closing, it really encompasses a lot of what we've been talking about. You know, I think my message, my closing thought would be uh, that we need to see each other. We need to genuinely see each other and we need to get to know each other. You know, I, I had the honor of giving a TEDx talk a few years ago and I talked about something called the 90 second encounter, which is just this challenge to healthcare professionals to spend the first 90 seconds of every encounter, getting to know your patient, the family on a personal level. It could be something as simple as, you know, what's your favorite place to go for vacation? Or what's the best book you ever read? Or what's your favorite food? Or what do you think, you know, what's the nastiest food you ever tasted? Just little things. And, and like you just shared, Dr. Hernandez Trujillo, I mean, it, it really doesn't take much. But when we begin to connect on a truly genuine human level, I think that that's really the first step towards uh, working towards health equity and eliminating these disparities and inequities and just really seeing each other and as humans first. So I want to thank you both again. This has been amazing and I look forward to hopefully future conversations. And to those of you watching, thank you so much for your attention. Have an amazing day and please be safe. Take care. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. You can watch the full panel discussion on our YouTube channel at www.youtube.com slash IDF videos. If you like our show and want to learn more, please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. And if you have a question you would like answered, email us at idf at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.